take your copy of God's Word and look to Acts chapter 10. I think Brian got down through verse 23a, the end of that paragraph. We will pick up right there in the middle of verse 23 where that new paragraph begins the next day. So Acts 10, 23, the latter half of that. My goal this morning is to cover the rest of chapter 10. I spent a good bit of time talking to Brian and Jacob about where we might stop, and I think this is the best approach. Here is my plan. I think we can do it. That, where we're going to begin reading there, halfway through 23 through 33, really are introductory to the main part of the text that we want to look at. All those verses are going to do is rehearse a lot of what Brian has taught in the past two lessons. So rather than doing a full introduction this morning, I just want to use those verses as the introduction. If you missed those two sermons, by the way, by Brian, he did really an outstanding job of explaining Cornelius and and a number of things about him. They're well worth your time to go back and listen to. Anyway... Treating those first 11 verses this way is going to give us the opportunity to really dig into the meat of the text, verses 34 through 48. I think that's that's where the richness is for us this morning, and I don't want to miss it. Now remember, and Brian has made this point numerous times, this narrative that begins in verse 1 of chapter 10 and runs all the way through verse 18 of chapter 11 is the longest narrative in the book of Acts. It covers not only the events at, at and leading up to the house of Cornelius, but also criticism that has arisen because of Peter visiting these uncircumcised Gentiles. Once Peter returns to Jerusalem, we'll actually see that in chapter 11. Then in chapter 15 at the Jerusalem council, when When Pharisees rose up saying of the Gentiles it is necessary to circumcise them and order them to keep the law of Moses, Peter goes right back to this narrative again and uses it to make a very crucial point. So this text is really important and it's imperative that we get it right because it's repeated in the next chapter and it's repeated in chapter 15. Obviously Luke saw this as critical, and that by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. The title this morning is Uncircumcised Gentiles Converted. And in this text, Peter preaches the gospel to Cornelius and those with him, and it it results in salvation, justification by faith alone in Jesus Christ. Let's begin reading. The next day he arose and went away with them, and some of the brothers from Joppa accompanied him. On the following day they entered Caesarea. Cornelius was expecting them and had called together his relatives and close friends. When Peter entered, Cornelius met him and fell down at his feet and worshipped him, but Peter lifted him up saying, Stand up, I too am a man." Okay, so in this chapter, on the first day of the narrative, what Brian covered, in response to his prayer, Cornelius was visited by an angel telling him to go get Peter. The second day, Peter received this vision of 
A sheet descending from heaven and all kinds of animals, clean animals according to the law, unclean animals according to the law. And God told him, rise, kill, and eat. Of course, Peter said, no, Lord. Those two things don't go together, obviously. Brian made that point very clear to us. But it taught Peter a lesson. We're going to see that here in just a moment. And this, what we just read, rehearses the next day, the third day, and even part of the, the fourth. Brian covered day one and day two in the previous two sermons. Today, in this one sermon, we plan to cover, and it shouldn't be hard, the third day is rather brief. We're going to cover the third and fourth day. And like I say, the third day ain't much. Right here in verse 23, Peter and some of the brothers from Joppa traveled with the men from Cornelius back to Caesarea to the house of Cornelius. That's day three. That's not difficult. And on the following day, day four, they arrived in the city. Now Cornelius obviously realized this was going to be a very important meeting. And so he knew this was something to invite people to hear. Chapter 11 actually records a more complete message from the angel, uh, Dr. Luke gives us a little more that he said. In, in verse 13, the angel told Cornelius, "Send to Joppa and bring to Simon uh, and bring Simon, who is called Peter. He will declare to you a message by which you will be saved, you and your household." And so as we might expect, he has his relatives and close friends all gathered together at his home when Peter arrives. And when Peter gets there, it says that Cornelius fell down at Peter's feet and worshipped him. But Peter forbade him, saying, Stand up, I too am a man. It would do the Pope good to read this right here. Because he is a man who falsely claims to be carrying on the office of Peter. <laughs> the man who would not allow someone to bow down to him, and yet the Pope regularly allows people to stop and bow down to him and actually kiss his feet. I don't need to wander off into that, but it would do him very good to read this, this passage here. So look at verse 27. As he talked with him, he went in and found many persons gathered, and he said to them, You yourselves know how unlawful it is for a Jew to associate with or visit anyone of another nation, but God has shown me that I should not call any person common or unclean. So when I was sent for, I came without objection. I asked then why you sent for me. So this pretty much rehearses what we learned of Peter's experience you know, earlier in the chapter. Israelites did not normally associate with Gentiles as he says here, it was unlawful for a Jew to do. Now, this was not the letter of the law. So it's not clearly stated anywhere in the Mosaic Code. But apparently this was tradition that had sort of become law. Don't be too hard on them. We have traditions that have become law too. We need to always test those by Scripture. But for them, this was much more salvific, I hope, than some of our traditions are. Nevertheless, you'll recall how God had told Peter, what God has made clean do not call common. That's verse 15. And so Peter tells us here that that vision, that vision of the animals, clean and unclean, referred 
to more than just dietary laws. It was about that, but it was not only about that. It also referred to these uncircumcised Gentiles as well. Once they receive Christ by faith, they are clean, apart from the law, apart from circumcision. Peter was obedient. He, he was sent for, and he came without objection. He did exactly what the Lord told him to do. And so now he asks Cornelius, why have you sent for me? Now remember, we know what's been going on on both ends of this thing, but they didn't. You know, they're, they're connecting the dots here. They're making sure that the ends meet. They're just catching up. So notice verse 30. And Cornelius said, Four days ago, about this hour, I was praying in my house at the ninth hour, and behold, a man stood before me in bright clothing and said, Cornelius, your prayer has been heard and your alms have been remembered before God. Send therefore to Joppa and ask for Simon who is called Peter. He is lodging in the house of Simon a tanner by the sea. So I sent for you at once, and you have been kind enough to come. Now therefore we are all here in the presence of God to hear all that you have been commanded by the Lord. So this essentially rehearses what we learned of Cornelius already in this chapter. It is important to see that God is working both ends here. He is in charge. He is not only working the salvation of Cornelius out, but He is also working the means that got the gospel to him through Peter. Look, God is sovereign over all of this. Cornelius' salvation and the means of the gospel getting to Cornelius. So it says four days ago. I hope we've made that clear enough where we are in this, this timeline. This is the fourth day. Cornelius was praying at the customary time of prayer. Now remember, he was a God-fearer. That was a group of Gentiles. He was not a Jewish proselyte. He had not been circumcised. He remained uncircumcised. But he did follow Jewish customs. And one of those customs was this daily ritualistic scheduling of prayer. And so he is here at the ritual hour praying, or at least he's re rehearsing that he was. I think this is where people get thrown off with Cornelius, thinking he was already saved. But the fact that it says he feared God here is just a description of a specific group that he was in. He was, he was an uncircumcised Gentile who followed some of the Jewish Regulations. He was a God-fearer. It's not that he's saved, but Brian explained all of, all of that. I'm not going to go back into that, but if you missed it, go and listen. It's greatly helpful. Anyway, that point that they are uncircumcised will be significant in chapter 11 and chapter 15. Significant. Well, Cornelius goes on to rehearse all that the angel told him, specifically that he was to send for Peter... He gave Peter's address and who he was staying with, Simon the Tanner. You know, God knows your address, right? He knows the address of every person. Every hair on your head is numbered. This is not difficult information for God to give to an angel to relay to Cornelius here. So essentially Cornelius says, you know, you came, you've got something to say, tell us what it is. We're here. We're ready. We're listening. 
Okay, that's, that's the introduction to where we're getting to. And really that just rehearsed everything that we've seen already in this chapter. And let's move on to verse 34. So, here's Peter's response to Cornelius. So Peter opened his mouth and said, Truly I understand that God shows no partiality, but in every nation anyone who fears Him and does what is right and is acceptable to Him. So this glances back to verse 28 and what Paul had, I mean, Peter had been taught by the Lord that no one is unclean that God has made clean, right? This is the point. God shows no partiality, but in every nation anyone who fears Him and does what is right is acceptable to Him. Look, there is no question that the nation of Israel has had many privileges. That especially before this day that we live in. Paul says so, Romans 3. What advantage has the Jew? What value is there of circumcision? Here's his answer. Much in every way, and he goes on to say, to begin with, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. They had God's Word, while the Gentile nations didn't. They had great privilege. No nation can claim such privilege. I think sometimes we view... America almost as Israel's kid brother, you know, or something, on par with the same privileges. But that, we have certainly been blessed as a nation, but we are just a Gentile nation at best. We are just one of the nations. But that's not any of the point that's being made here in the text. As far as individual salvation is concerned, and this is, this is where we want to get to the root of the matter, God shows no partiality. In, in other words, every person must come to Him the exact same way through Jesus. There is no other way. Listen, this is common knowledge to us. We are a melting pot world. We, we have people from every nation here in our town almost just because of the university. So we, we, we are well informed that... You know, God saves different people from different cultures and all of this thing. But this was not common knowledge for a first century Jew. This was shocking. We're going to see just how shocking it is when we get to the end of this text here in just a moment. This was big news. And just for the record, Peter is not preaching a work salvation here at all. That is not at all the point. That will be clear here in just a moment as well. These things... Those who fear Him, those who do what are right, these are just things that accompany conversion. They're not the root of faith. They're the fruit of faith. All right, verse 36. As for the word that He sent to Israel, preaching good news of peace through Jesus Christ, He is Lord of all. You yourselves know what happened throughout all Judea, beginning from Galilee after the baptism that John proclaimed, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power. He went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. Now, many believe, and I, and I think rightly so, that Peter's address here to them summarizes what we might call the common Apostles, apostles' teaching. This is what the apostles taught, and so it's what the early churches taught. The Word of God, through Jesus, was sent 
first to Israel. And let us not forget, by the way, that John tells us that Jesus is the Word incarnate. Now these Gentiles in Caesarea knew something of Jesus' ministry. Some of the waves that Christ had made in Israel had, had made their way out to these people. We don't know what all they knew, but they knew something. It's sort of like when Paul told King Agrippa in Acts 26, I'm persuaded that none of these things has escaped your notice. He says, because these things have not been done in a corner. In other words, the things Jesus was doing were significant. They were amazing. He was walking into a town full of sick people and He was walking out of the town and there were no sick. He was proving that He is the King of the kingdom, right? He is proving that He is the Messiah. All of these things. There's no way that information did not spread quickly, as quickly as it could back then. Much about Jesus was known, at the very least, His miracle-working ability, his, his death by the religious leaders of His day at the hands of the Romans. They seemed to at least know that Jesus' ministry spanned several years after John's ministry. But they did not know everything. And so Peter is going to fill in some of the blanks. In verse 39, he says, And we are witnesses of all that he did, both in the country of the Jews and in Jerusalem. They put him to death by hanging him on a tree, but God raised him on the third day and made him to appear, not to all the people, but to us who had been chosen by God as witnesses, who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead, And he commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one appointed by God to be the judge of the living and the dead. So Peter shifts from what is common knowledge out in the world. He shifts to those things that the apostles specifically were called to be witnesses of. And again, it's, it's unclear how much Cornelius along with his Friends and family knew of this information. But Peter and the other apostles were witnesses of all that Jesus did both in the country of the Jews and in Jerusalem. He, he's not speaking generally of the work of all believers here. This was inside information that they were given by walking around with Jesus day after day, at least initially. Certainly, they quickly relayed this information to other believers and they knew it. There's no question there. But Peter is referring to the apostles specifically. This is very important. It will become even more clear here in just a moment. And you're going to think this sermon is an introduction to my sermon in 2 Corinthians this afternoon. But it's just how things fail. Peter then preaches the gospel to this group. Like he preaches the death, burial, and resurrection. Now I have no question in my mind that we have a very abbreviated account of everything that Peter says here. But we have all that we need. And, and I'm quite certain much more was said, but we don't need to go into those things that are written or not written, I should say, in the white spaces. We have enough here. The appearance of Jesus to a select group of followers is key. 
It's an important apostolic theme. Notice, Jesus appeared after He rose from the dead, not to all the people, but to us who had been chosen by God as witnesses, who ate and drank with Him after He rose from the dead. Now, Paul actually informs us in 1 Corinthians 15 that there was this one occasion where Jesus appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time. That was verifiable in the early church. If Paul and Peter and the other apostles were lying, it could have easily been proven that they were lying. Anyway, what Peter is describing here is much more intimate fellowship than that bigger group. These ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. This is apostolic teaching, apostolic knowledge. By the way, Jesus eating and drinking after the resurrection is an important point. Not only here, but in Luke's gospel, when they were still struggling with doubt, Luke writes, quote, He said to them, Have you anything here to eat? They gave him a piece of broiled fish, and he took it and ate it before them. End quote. That, that, this is greatly important. Jesus was not some type of phantom, right? He was not a ghost or a spirit. Now, Jesus rose from the grave bodily. That is orthodox Christianity. And, and by the fact that it is mentioned here that they ate and drank with Him, Peter is establishing orthodox doctrine to Cornelius and those there in his house. By the way, it may be even more encouragement to us. Maybe we can look forward to a big crappie dinner in the kingdom one day, right? Yeah, amen. That's speculation, of course, but I mean, what other kind of fish would they be serving, right? Anyway, Peter then tells them, and he, Jesus, commanded us to preach to the people and testify that he is the one appointed by God to be judge of the living and the dead. This, this probably hints at least to what is often called the Great Commission where Jesus told the, the eleven, Judas is, Judas is dead by this point, he's betrayed Jesus, he's committed suicide. Jesus told the eleven, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Listen to this. Teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. I don't, I don't have time to flesh all of that out. Uh, by the way, we are tentatively beginning Matthew on Wednesday nights after Ezekiel. That will probably start in a couple of weeks. If you'd like to hear Matthew preached, come on Wednesday evenings. But listen, Jesus, the authorized New Covenant lawgiver, if you want to hear more about that, I would suggest you come to Listen up. Matthew on Wednesday nights. But Jesus, as the authorized New Covenant lawgiver, sends them to teach all that He has commanded them. They had been with Him. And as Luke puts it in our text, they were chosen by God as witnesses. Jesus taught the apostles all kinds of things that other believers just were not able to hear. Now they heard it very quickly as the apostles began to voice it to them. 
but they didn't know it initially. And that's precisely why when we get to Acts chapter 2, we find that, that you know, the Jerusalem church, and, and of course churches that were established later on following the Jerusalem church, it says that they followed the apostles' teaching. See, that's precisely what's going on here. We still do that today. The New Testament canon, it's, it's the apostles' teaching. It was penned by the apostles or men very closely associated with the apostles. Now, I say all this about the apostles to say this. It is, it is significant that God sent Cornelius to an apostle, to Peter, one who was to be a witness of all that Jesus did. And Peter realizes that. That's why he brings it up here like he does, that it, we, the apostles, were commissioned with this. And this is going to pay great dividends when we get to chapter 11 when an apostle is questioned by the church at Jerusalem. I don't have the time to get into that. They are questioned again in chapter 15. And Peter, an apostle, stands up and defends the faith of uncircumcised Gentiles. This is significant. This is this is big. It's not big for us because we're living 2,000 years ago or 2,000 years later in a Gentile world. But it was big here. And I don't think there's any way that we can explain just how big it was. Well, Peter essentially brings everything to a crescendo. And the height of it all reaches, or the pinnacle maybe I should say, it reaches in verse 43. To him all the prophets bear witness... And everyone who believes in Him receives forgiveness of sins through His name. So the way that the writers of the New Testament and the, and the early churches as a whole really leaned on the Old Testament, that ought to be proof enough that the Old Testament is still very important. It is Scripture. Peter points back here to the message of the prophets, which... He said, listen to this, bear witness that everyone who believes in Him receives forgiveness of sins through His name. By the way, the, the idea of the authority possessed in Jesus, not only as the Son of God, but as that one like Moses who was coming. That, he is that new covenant lawgiver, you see. The authority possessed by Jesus is declared when it says, through His name. Name. Jesus is greater. He is above us. Make note, this is greatly important. Listen, the Old Testament taught sola fide that we talked about earlier. That is justification by faith alone. This is, this, there's no way to misunderstand that. Now, obviously, we have the New Testament. And living this side of the ministry of Jesus, it, it's clearer in the New Testament. But it was present in the Old Testament Scriptures. The gospel of justification by faith alone is not a New Testament doctrine. It is a Bible doctrine. From Genesis to Revelation, everyone who has ever been saved, or ever will be saved for that matter, either has been or will be saved the same exact way. By grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, plus nothing. And that's what, that's what Peter's saying. Now, now Peter has essentially brought them to a crossroad here. 
He has given them important information, which if they believe, means they are justified before God, saved from their sins. But if they refuse to believe, they remain guilty. Well, let's see what happened. Verse 44. While Peter was still saying these things, the Holy Spirit fell on all those who heard the Word. I, I, I'm hesitant to continue saying this, but this, this is significant and will come up again, not only in chapter 11, but in chapter 15 at the Jerusalem Council. This is, this is significant in the book of Acts. And certainly the Holy Spirit opened their heart to believe the gospel. That is without question, but there is more here than that. This is what we might call the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Peter says that in chapter 11 when he's explaining to the church in Jerusalem what happened. Look at verse 15, chapter 11. He's rehearsing, as I began to speak, the Holy Spirit fell on them, listen to this, just as on us at the beginning. He means Pentecost there. And I remembered the word of the Lord, how he said, John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. If then God gave the same gift to them as he gave to us when we believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I to stand in God's way? See, he's pointing back to the giving of the Holy Spirit, the baptism of the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost. Peter believed that to refuse to see what was happening to these uncircumcised Gentiles would have been to stand in God's way. That's what he says there in chapter 11. It would be working against God's purpose. This is huge. All those who responded in faith, by God's grace, of course, but all those who responded in faith to the gospel Peter preached here on this day received Holy Spirit baptism. Here's the significance. On Pentecost, it was a completely Jewish crowd. Not here. Here, it's on uncircumcised Gentiles. God-fearing Gentiles, sure, that's fine. But they're still uncircumcised Gentiles. And that is a crossroad now for the Jews who are with Peter. Believing Jews. Notice just how it impacted them. Verse 45. And the believers from among the circumcised, the Jews, who had come with Peter were amazed. Why? Because the gift of the Holy Spirit was poured out even on the Gentiles. These Jews with Peter were amazed, it says. They were, they were astounded. Or as the old authorized version renders it, they were astonished. They did not expect this. They were not looking for it. They did not see it coming. Look, Luke is very clear what they were amazed at. They are not amazed at... God's sovereign electing grace here. That is not it. I'm sure they were amazed at that in their own life when they studied that. That is not what they're amazed at here in this text. They are amazed because the gift of the Holy Spirit was poured out even on the Gentiles. They're not amazed just because the Holy Spirit is poured out. 
Now they are amazed that he was poured out even on the Gentiles. Right, that's, that's the kicker here. And Luke describes an experience very much like Pentecost. They were hearing them speak in tongues. They were extolling God, verse 46. Look, it's very similar to what we studied in Acts 2. And again, if you doubt that there's a, there's a connection between those two events, Peter said over in chapter 11 that the Holy Spirit fell on them just as on us at the beginning. That is the very point that he is making. He is going to say the same thing in Acts 15, verse 8. The shock to them is that Gentiles receive the baptism of the Holy Spirit in the house of Cornelius just like Jews did back on the day of Pentecost. That is why they are so amazed. I think shocked is a good word. Mouths gaping open. Well, this action by the Holy Spirit causes Peter to act. It makes him speak up. Notice... Verse 46, then Peter declared, Can anyone withhold water for baptizing these people who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have or just like we have? By the way, before I get into the question Peter asks here, can we just put to rest the idea that people are saved through the ordinance of baptism? This text is so clear that a child can understand it. These people are saved. They have received the Holy Spirit and they have not been baptized. There is no argument that can be made otherwise. Baptism is important. It is the first public act of obedience following conversion. If you are a believer, you should be baptized, but it has nothing to do with salvation. Period. Okay, having seen these uncircumcised Gentiles then receive the Holy Spirit, Peter turns around and he looks at the Jews that are with him. And he essentially says to them, listen guys, God is obviously at work here. You see the Holy Spirit falling on these people the same way He fell on us at Pentecost. There is no reason whatsoever we should not baptize these baptize these people. These are true Christian converts saved by the grace of God. Listen, this passage here in Acts 10 is about this point, Gentile inclusion. That is, that is what it's about. It is, it is about salvation apart from the works of the law. That is, that is what's going on. The baptism of the Holy Spirit that we see here and three other times in the book of Acts is not an ongoing action throughout church history for all believers. It is not. Some mistakenly teach that, but that is not it. This is significant. There was a major reason why we see it happen here. I'm sure these Jews with Peter were quite challenged by Peter's words. Hey, we need to baptize these uncircumcised Gentiles. They already been amazed that the Holy Spirit fell on them. I, I got a feeling they were a little shocked that Peter was suggesting baptism. But I'm assuming they all agreed with Peter. Because notice what happens. Verse 48, He commanded them to be baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. 
or excuse me, the name of Jesus Christ, then they asked him to remain for some days. There does not seem to be any opposition. I mean, how can you argue with the Holy Spirit here? By the way, in the name of Jesus Christ, it means by His authority. You know, he, he, is the, he is the Son of God. He is the Messiah. He is the King of kings. He is the Lord of lords. He's the Savior of men. Or as I said earlier, He's the new covenant lawgiver. There, there is not the first word suggesting that these Gentiles needed circumcision before we baptize. There's nothing here about that. Now perhaps those in Caesarea had known something of Jesus before Peter got there. But they didn't know everything. And they still don't know everything. And so they asked for Peter to remain for some days, which it seems that he did. No doubt teaching them you know, more truths about the Christian faith. Now in the next text, Peter is going to return to Jerusalem but he will not receive the welcome that he was perhaps expecting. Notice verse 2 in chapter 11. It says, When Peter went up to Jerusalem, the circumcision party, the, the believing Jews, the circumcision party criticized him saying, You went to uncircumcised men and ate with them. Now to eat with somebody back in that day meant more than it means to us. Uh, we may walk up to somebody in a restaurant and just say, is anybody sitting here? There's no other seats. We don't mean anything by that. But for, for a Jew to eat with somebody, or even in Roman culture at this time, to eat with somebody was to accept them as an equal, so to speak. And here Peter is eating with uncircumcised Gentiles, what are they going to think when they find out that Peter didn't only eat with them, he baptized them. He, he believes that they're saved apart from the keeping of the law. I don't have time to get into that this morning, but what in the world are they going to think? That all comes to a head again in chapter 15. Listen, Brian, Brian stressed this multiple times. That you, I, th- I hope you can see why this passage here is so important. It carries weight even for us today. It carries weight. Now we've continued to say that the book of Acts is about the explosion of the gospel from Jerusalem to the end of the earth, to to Rome. And that is true. But alongside that is, is this further information that we receive here in this text. This explanation of salvation by grace alone apart from law keeping. Or as it's worded here, apart from circumcision, but circumcision was just sort of shorthand to include living according to the law. Let me make this one point and I'll I'll, I'll close. We're bumping up against the hour here. This age that we live in today, we we sometimes refer to it as as the church age. Anyway, this this day was a mystery in the Old Testament. It, It was unknown. Salvation of the Gentiles was not unknown. That was clear. That That was clear just the moment that God called Abraham. He said, I'll make a great nation out of you and through you all the nations of the earth will be blessed. And he continued to repeat that to him. Salvation of Gentiles was not a mystery. But in this age that there would exist these little 
small pockets of believers scattered around the globe in which Jew and Gentile would perhaps sit on the same pew side by side and worship the Lord together, listening to the same sermons, singing the same hymns, praying for one another, discipling one another, that was unknown. And Paul writes of this mystery in Ephesians 3. And here's what he says. This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs. Fellow heirs. And we see that being lived out right here in Acts chapter 10 in the house of Cornelius. They are fellow heirs. Now in the next chapter, the Jews aren't going to want to admit that. And again, that's going to happen as we go through the book. But the truth is, we have been bought by the same blood, saved by the same grace, justified in the same way as a Jew, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, David, whoever. And we find that truth right here in Acts 10. Stand with me, if you will.